Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. The Ontario government comes back this week with a new speech from the throne. We'll tell you what's in it. The Supreme Court has spoken, but just barely. Toronto City Council will remain at its much smaller and much busier size. And yet another progressive conservative MPP gets into trouble over the issue of vaccination status. We'll fill you in on that as well. It's Tuesday, October 5th, 2021. So let's get to it. Representative of Her Majesty the Queen, it is my privilege to open the second session of the 42nd Parliament by delivering the speech from the throne. That voice belongs to Ontario's Lieutenant Governor Elizabeth Dowdswell, who, as the Queen's representative, is responsible for reading the government's speech from the throne. That happened Monday morning at Queen's Park. Now, of course, the LG reads the throne speech, but that doesn't mean that she endorses it or supports it. It is simply her job to read it on behalf of the government of the day. So just before we explore what's in the speech, let's do some typical On Poly podcast getting into the weeds here. Now, for you On Poly newbies, JMM, what's the purpose of a throne speech anyway? So uh, a throne speech is uh, how the government starts every new session of of the the legislature. Uh, The session actually starts with the lieutenant governor issuing a proclamation calling MPPs uh, to the legislature. And then the throne speech is the next step in that uh, with uh, the LG then uh, in the name of the government laying out, uh, you know, why MPPs have been called uh, to, uh, to the legislature, what the government intends to ask them to do to endorse uh, that kind of thing. Uh, So it's, you know, Traditionally, it's a, a list of the the priorities of what the government expects to tackle. Uh, also, you know, a, 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 a sort of analogous to the State of the Union speech in the U.S. It's it's very common, as we saw in this week's uh, throne speech, to sort of you know talk about where Ontario has been and and as well as where uh, the government expects to take them. A bit like a State of the Union speech in the U.S., except without the. 45,000 standing ovations that every president always (laughs) seems to get every 30 seconds. Big difference there. Yes, indeed. And, you know, the the, the speech, as we've mentioned, it's delivered uh, by the lieutenant governor um, in the federal parliament. The governor general reads it. And, of course, uh, in Westminster, uh, in in, the the United Kingdom, uh, as we call it, you know, the mother of all parliaments, uh, the queen herself reads it. And uh, on occasion, uh, when the visit of a queen uh, corresponds to a uh, the, the the legislative calendar uh, she has also actually delivered throne speeches in ottawa cool now with that background in place let's get to the highlights of this speech from the throne what did you find to be the handful of items the government intends to focus on in this upcoming session so there actually wasn't a lot, and that was something that the opposition uh, really pounced on, uh, that you know the government prorogued the legislature, uh, brought forward this throne speech, and there was not a lot in terms of specific items for the coming session that we hadn't already heard. Uh, you know, a lot of emphasis on, uh, you know, the government's expanded ha- uh, health care spending, uh, a, you know, a new hospital opening in York region, uh, defending the government's, uh, you know, 
relatively cautious approach to reopening after the third wave, uh, the decision to implement vaccine passports. These are all sort of backwards looking statements. These, these are all, you know, parts of the speech that we're talking about, you know, basically the government for lack of a better word, patting itself on the back for things that have happened in the past. In terms of setting out things in the future, um, one of the only things we actually got was a a clear promise to bring in new legislation to reform the long-term care sector. Uh, But of course, uh, Minister of Long-Term Care, Rod Phillips, has been talking about that for some time. Uh, And there was also a pledge from uh, the government that uh, restoring Ontario's fiscal balance uh, will be done via economic growth and not painful spending cuts or tax increases. So they say. Stay tuned, as we like to say. Uh, I don't know how many throne speeches I've seen over the years. Um, The short answer is plenty. I've seen a lot of them. They are usually kind of vague, lofty-sounding, aspirational documents without a lot of detail on what specifically the government intends to do and how quickly it intends to do it. Uh, In your view, as these things go, how detailed or not, or how concrete or not, how aspirational or not did you find this one compared to other throne speeches you've seen? Uh, so I have not seen as many throne speeches as you have, um, but... Nobody uh, has, I John think... Michael. Don't worry about it. Nobody has. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think a, a fair comparison here is to the throne speech that uh, started this government uh, back in 2018. Uh, this throne speech delivered this week is um, actually a bit longer just in terms of its raw word count. Uh, but the 2018 speech had a few more specific items that the government was planning to address. Uh, now, not all of those items were um, popular or uh, necessarily even wise, but they were at least uh, specific uh, promises that the government was making uh, for the future. And, you know, of course, that's not surprising, right? A freshly elected government, uh, especially one after, as it was, about 15 years of uh, uh, liberal uh, government. Uh, you know, the Tories were, were back in power after so long. They had lots of things that they wanted to do. So, yeah, the, the throne speech in 2018 was, was more detailed uh, than this one. But, you know, it's really hard to get around this simple fact that, you know, the government took, I think, more words to say less this time than it did in its 2018 throne speech. Well, let me make this observation about this throne speech compared to the Ford government's first one in the summer of 2018. That first one really stood out from previous throne speeches that I have seen because government MPPs, they'll forgive me for saying this, they behaved incredibly badly. They hooted, they hollered. When the lieutenant governor read out things that they approved of in the throne speech, and at one point, the lieutenant governor, and it was Elizabeth Dowdswell back then as well, she actually stopped reading the throne speech, and she lifted her eyes from the page, and she actually stared daggers at the Tory caucus, as if to say, please shut up and listen and stop turning this august event into a circus. Now, I'm not sure they ever actually got the message, because they did continue to hoot and howl, but given all of that... Given how the caucus behaved on that occasion three plus years ago, how did they do today? Did they clean up their act at all? Uh, it really was far more solemn this time. Uh, in part, that was because the chamber itself was, uh, I believe, less than half full due to COVID rules. Um, but I think it was also you know, precisely because the government caucus saw that uh, a lot of the behavior from uh, not just that 
first uh, day of, of the throne speech, but really a lot of the behavior in that first year or so in office, it did not make the government look great. Um, and, you know, in retrospect, I think many of them regret some of the um, hooting and hollering, as you call it. Uh, and so they treated this occasion with, I, I think, a bit more of the traditional respect that it carries. And I have a column on the TVO website, tvo.org forward slash the agenda, which talks about this very thing and concludes that the Ford government's behavior on the occasion of this throne speech was actually normal. And normal (laughs) is a highly underrated value in politics these days. So credit where it's due. Okay, let's move on to what was a very notable decision by the Supreme Court of Canada last week. We all remember shortly after the PCs won that election in June of 2018, they brought in a bill which essentially cut the size of Toronto City Council basically in half. And they did it with just a couple of months to go before Municipal Election Day. So it did cause an enormous amount of disruption in that campaign because, of course, with half as many wards to run in, suddenly many candidates had nowhere to run because the constituency they wanted to run in disappeared. The city of Toronto sued the province for interfering in its democratic process. The Ontario Court of Appeal upheld the provincial government's moves. And now, JMM, the Supreme Court has as well. What did the court have to say? So the province's decision, and this is about Bill 5, which was called the uh, Better Local Government Act, um, the province's decision was challenged on a number of grounds. But the two most important uh, grounds for our purposes are that it interfered with people's free expression rights under Section 2 of the Charter, and that it breached uh, what are called unwritten constitutional principles of democracy. A majority of the court, uh, five justices to four, um, said no, basically that uh, the the Bill 5 was not unconstitutional and uh, the provincial government was within its uh, powers to, to go ahead with it. Uh, but, you know, four justices actually uh, agreed with uh, the the challenges, basically saying that uh, the, uh, the decision was un- unconstitutional and should not have been allowed to go forward. Um, you know, effectively, uh, the majority is saying that, you know, the Constitution really is very unambiguous. It gives uh, provinces the sole uh, uh, jurisdiction to make municipal policy, uh, to structure municipalities however they want, uh, and that while you know unwritten principles in the Constitution might exist, you can't have unwritten principles that overrule the clear and written text of the Constitution. So the province can call the shots, did call the shots, and on the question of democracy, they do have this interesting point uh, that the majority makes uh, several times, basically saying that, you know, by the time that Bill 5 received royal assent, uh, there were still 69 days to go before election day. And that's actually about twice as long as a usual Canadian election campaign. So in the court's view, even if you granted that there was a disruption to a, a, a an important democratic principle, the disruption still allowed for uh, plenty of time for would-be candidates to you know, rearrange their affairs. I know the court's majority says that. I'm sure you would have a hard time getting anybody who ran in that election campaign and found their constituency disappeared under their feet. I think you'd have a hard time getting them to agree to that 
uh, contention by the majority. What you have said is all fair and accurate, but here's what's also a fact. The court made this decision by a 5-4 margin. That is very unusual on the Canadian Supreme Court, where we tend not to have frequent 5-4 decisions, unlike on the American Supreme Court, where it has felt like over the last many decades, all the major decisions seem to be 5-4. to four. It's a very split court. And in one of her last decisions on our high court before her retirement, which took place last July 1st, Madam Justice Rosalia Bella wrote the summary for the four judges who opposed the majority, and Madam Justice Abella was quite scathing in her suggestion that the majority simply didn't appreciate how anti-democratic the provincial government's decision was. She really let them have it, JMM. She absolutely did, you know, and I think this is where you get really a... A, a very strong sense of the, the competing ideas of what um, really like what the modern sort of Canadian constitutional order should be, if I can sort of use that that sort of grandiose uh, phrase. Um, you know, the, the people who argued against uh, Bill 5 said that, you know, municipalities have evolved beyond being simply, you know, creatures of the province. They are, you know, their own mature level of government that deserves more uh, uh deference or more respect than to simply be brushed off by a cavalier uh, provincial government. Uh, Justice Abella uh, found the province's approach to be um, capricious and anti-democratic and very disruptive. Uh, the election campaign was uh, already almost nine months old by the time the province changed the law. Uh, and in fact, I mean, one of the the those little details of that whole chaotic period was that nominations actually closed before Bill 5 got royal assent, right? You know, that that's one of the things that I think, you know, needs to be emphasized in terms of the, the, the case of how disruptive it was. Uh, you know, this, this election was very near completion <laughs> before uh, the province intervened. Um, that said, you know, the minority opinion, the dissenting opinion is already very controversial among a lot of legal observers uh, who I've been, you know, seeing certainly speak up about it on, on Twitter and in other social media. You know, even if you opposed Bill 5, there is a real concern that uh, a decision that, you know, had one justice changed their minds, we could have had a decision that struck down a a uh, piece of legislation on unwritten constitutional principles, even when there's pretty clear and unambiguous text of the Constitution giving the provincial government the power to do what it did. Um, you know, you don't have to be a uh, in, in the U.S. context. We've already talked about the U.S. Supreme Court, where, you know, I think people talk about, uh, you know, sticking to the text of the law as like a conservative ideology. But I don't think you have to be a conservative to be maybe a, a, a little anxious about uh, judges overruling uh, the law based on things that are by definition unwritten. Let's also remember this, though. Premier Doug Ford was already on the record as having said, if the court rules against me, I will use the notwithstanding clause of the Constitution to set aside the court's decision and impose my law anyway, shrinking the size of counsel. Uh, but in the end, Ford won on the high court anyway, five to four, as we suggested. So let me ask you this, because you used to cover Toronto City Hall, and a lot of people have speculated over the years that one of the reasons Ford wanted to cut council down to size goes back to the days when his brother Rob was the mayor, and he was a member of city council, Doug Ford, I'm saying, and the two of them were never much admired at City Hall. So this was, in effect, Doug Ford's revenge on his former colleagues. How much truth do you think there is in that? 
So two things here. Um, one, I, I certainly don't think that he was listening very closely to any of the critics of Bill 5, and it, it was just a fact that the loudest voices in opposition were precisely the kinds of progressive counselors and other progressive politicians, some of them you know, were hoping to get elected in, in 2018 and ended up not being. Uh, these are the kinds of people he had most often clashed with as a counselor, uh, he and his brother. Um, I don't know if he was, you know, uh, motivated by a, like a sense of, of malice uh, or, or, you know, animus to try and like teach his former rivals a lesson now that he's premier, you know. Um, but, you know, it's also it's hard to tell the difference, right? Um, how, how different would it look if he had been trying to do it sh- out of sheer malice? Um, the other point that I just want to make is like it didn't work, right? The, it, by cutting council, uh, the people who benefited most were uh, longtime councillors, uh, at least one of whom had announced uh, a plan to actually resign and then came out of resignation, if that's a word, uh, to run again. And so the 25 councillors uh, who are there now uh, are, are overwhelmingly uh, the same people who were on council back when Doug Ford was there. By cutting council, he, he, uh, he, he made it easier for the incumbents to stick around, which I don't think was his intent. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Okay, let's do one more item here. Vaccination politics. As we know and as we have discovered over the past several weeks, this can be very tricky in Ontario these days, and we have seen another casualty of vaccination politics this past week. The member for Durham, her name is Lindsay Park. She was stripped of her parliamentary assistance role because, apparently, JMM, she, and this is the government's word, she misrepresented her vaccination status. What's the story there? So the government had asked, uh, and I guess we should say here that the PC caucus had asked all of its members to confirm their vaccination status. And uh, apparently she, uh, MPP Park, has a medical exemption, but did not clearly or properly communicate that to the party leadership. Uh, because of that, uh, the government, is, as you say, is being careful to call this a, a misrepresentation or a, you know, a failure to communicate. So she is uh, losing her position as a parliamentary assistant to the attorney general. Uh, I do want to add also um, the opposition have already pointed out that this is now two uh, progressive conservative MPPs uh, who have apparently been granted medical exemptions. But the grounds for a medical exemption to a vaccination on uh, in Ontario's vaccine passport program are very, very limited. And so the idea that two out of the 70-odd MPPs would both have those kinds of medical exemptions. Um, Statistically, that's very unlikely. Uh, So it seems, or at least we have grounds to wonder, I guess I'll say, uh, whether uh, members of the PC caucus are being held to the same uh, standard, the same medical thresholds uh, that other people in Ontario are as far as uh, vaccine exemptions are being considered. (laughs) And just before everybody says, oh, big deal, she lost her parliamentary assistance job. What's the big deal there? Uh, The fact of the matter is, it's good to be a parliamentary assistant. Uh, It's good to be in cabinet. Obviously, when you get these added perks, uh, it's beneficial to you, not just in terms of your status and your ability to get things done at Queen's Park, but losing your PA ship, that's a $16,000 hit to your salary as well. So not insignificant. Now, the politics of this issue have always been tricky for the Conservatives because they do have that strain of libertarianism in their coalition, which, I mean, as we have seen over the last few years, 
They are just not enamored of this whole vaccination situation. York Center MPP Roman Babber was booted out of the caucus for opposing the government's position on vaccinations, among other things. And then came Rick Nichols, the Southwestern Ontario MPP, booted out for refusing to be vaccinated at all. And now it's Lindsay Park, who's still in the caucus, incidentally, but has been a tad defenestrated by losing her parliamentary assistantship. Actually, I want to take us back to Rick Nichols one more time, because some of his private text message exchanges with the Tory campaign chief, Corey Tanaik, have emerged. And we certainly have no illusions anymore about what the central campaign thinks of Rick Nichols, right? <laughs> no, that's been made um, unambiguous. Uh, according to these text messages, uh, Tanaik called Nichols a kooky conspiracy theorist. Uh, Nichols, uh, in these text messages, he refers Tanaik to a website uh, defending uh, uh, Nichols' desire not to be vaccinated. Uh, let's just say that the, the website cited um, would not pass muster in the New England Journal of Medicine or the Lancet or the Centers for Disease Control. Uh, the website is something called uh, Health Impact News. And, um, you know, it's predictably filled with misinformation, half-truths and very misleading stuff uh, that to, you know, scientifically minded people comes across as a bit unhinged. Uh, but if you are an anti-vaxxer, as Rick Nichols is, uh, it is considered legitimate proof for your views. Anyway, uh, Nichols will no longer sit as a conservative, and uh, he said he's not going to run in the next election anyway. Uh, we actually also got a little bit of news uh, about Nichols after the throne speech on Monday. Uh, government House Leader Paul Calandra uh, effectively confirming that Nichols is going to be stripped of his title of Deputy Speaker of the Legislature, uh, and he will be replaced in that role by Bruce Grayo and Sound MPP Bill Walker, uh, just as, you know, Lindsay Park uh, took a pay hit for being demoted from parliamentary assistant. Uh, Rick Nichols will also be uh, demoted, uh, though uh, technically this is not a decision that the government gets to make on its own. They are going to bring a motion to the House for MPPs to vote on. Uh, but of course, the government has a majority in the legislature, so this is extremely likely to pass without any real trouble. And Bill Walker used to be in the Ford government's cabinet. He was dropped in the last shuffle. And I think for him, this will be a nice vote of confidence if he presumably wins the vote whenever it happens um, to become the deputy speaker. It's a nice, nice perk for him and a, uh, you know, a reasonably important job at Queen's Park to help the debates move along. And all of this, we can remind our listeners, comes in the context of Speaker Ted Arnott imposing a new rule on MPPs and staff alike that they either be vaccinated or have a fresh COVID-19 test before entering the legislature. So that's all new as of this week. And we might get some news on that front as well. Uh, right after the throne speech ended on Monday, uh, New Democrat House Leader Peggy Sattler raised a point of order. And I, I like procedural stuff. You know that about me, Steve. So I thought I would just uh, play the clip for our listeners. Point of order, the member for London West. Uh, thank you, Speaker. I seek unanimous consent to move a motion without notice, calling on the Assembly to require all members physically present in the Chamber and committees to be fully vaccinated for COVID-19 or possess a valid medical exemption in keeping with our responsibility to lead by example. Member for London West is seeking the unanimous consent of the House to move a motion without notice with respect to the vaccination status of members. Agreed? No, agreed. I heard a no. 
So that was the NDP House leader trying to get unanimous consent for a motion to require MPPs to be vaccinated uh, to enter the chamber or committee rooms at the legislature. Uh, She didn't get unanimous consent, but anyone who remembers the fight over paid sick leave earlier this year will know that the opposition can keep asking for unanimous consent uh, over and over again. The only reason a motion like this would matter, I think, is to reinforce the decision that Speaker Arnott has already made. Uh, So we will see if the government decides Uh, that they want to uh, do that and let a motion like this pass, uh, either uh, by the opposition or of their own uh, initiative. Uh, Or, you know, potentially the NDP could just keep having to raise this issue uh, in an attempt to embarrass the government. That will be just something else for us to all keep an eye on in this new session that is just getting started. Well, if you're going to get all procedural on me, I'm going to do it to you. I want to seek unanimous (laughs) consent right now to finish this thing up. All those in favor say aye. Aye. <laughs> the, I, the eyes have it. <laughs> Here we go. We always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have those for you immediately after we ask you, as we always do, to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't like, and help make this little podcast a little bit better. You can shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Here now, my quote of the week, and I want to go back to Monday's speech from the throne. And here's Lieutenant Governor Elizabeth Dowdswell saying some words that, to the best of my recollection, government ministers almost never say in any of their speeches. We are all on lands traditionally occupied by Indigenous peoples. They continue to care for this land. They continue to shape Ontario today. And I want to show my respect. Traditionally, Toronto was a gathering place for many Indigenous nations, including the Anishinaabeg, the Haudenosaunee, the Wendat and Métis peoples. I acknowledge we are meeting in the area covered by Treaty 13, also known as the Toronto Purchase. And I pay my respects to the Mississaugas of the credit. That's Lieutenant Governor Elizabeth Dowdswell doing a land acknowledgement at the beginning of the throne speech, something that has previously been almost unheard of for this government to do. Uh, And it was not part of her uh, delivery of the throne speech in 2018 either. So it is a a notable change. Uh, My quote of the week also comes from the lieutenant governor uh, on one of the few uh, notable promises that the government is making for the rest of this session. Your government remains steadfast in its commitment to an economic and fiscal recovery that is fueled by economic growth, not painful tax hikes or spending cuts. To do so, your government will build Ontario. Build roads and highways. Build and expand transit to communities across the province. Build an economy that makes Ontario the best place in the world to do business, work and raise a family, no matter where you live in the province. And that's Lieutenant Governor Elizabeth Dowdswell uh, promising uh, no big tax hikes and no big spending, uh, at least until the next election. Making the commitment on behalf of the government, of course, because she is scrupulously neutral in all things, as we know. Of course, of course. (laughs) And that is this week's episode of the On Poly podcast, produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Halliwell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. 